want you to look again at the map. I know we see this every week. Um, this is Corinth right here, okay? So we started Jerusalem down here, went up to Antioch, all through Asia Minor, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, all those areas. Now he was in Athens last week. Now he's in Corinth this week, okay? So Corinth is down in southern Greece, what's now southern Greece. Um, there is a city called Corinth today. We'll look at that in just a minute. He's going to go over to Ephesus and Colossae area and then back down to Jerusalem a little bit. So just want you to keep getting a picture of where he is and what's going on because it's important that we know that. Now, Corinth was a very um, significant city um, and Paul at this point goes down there alone. Much of the narrative that we see uh, in chapter 13 focuses on, uh, from chapter 13 on, focuses on Paul. And even though he initially traveled with Barnabas, and then now he's traveling with Timothy and Silas and Luke, um, much of the narrative shifts from the apostles after chapter 13 specifically to Paul. And the ministry was largely dependent on him. He was the speaker. He was the evangelist. He was the apologist. He was the one who got in all the discussions. And at the same time, he was the most polarizing figure. He was the one everybody didn't like and the one that they would try to stone and kick out of town and, and whatever the case may be. So Paul's, Paul's the one who's kind of the main figure from chapter 13 on. Now, at this point, as we get to chapter 18, which we'll read in a minute, he is going to Corinth alone. And Timothy and Silas are going to join him later. But for the first four verses of chapter 18, Paul goes down to Corinth by himself. And he is going to meet people there who are going to energize his ministry and are going to become faithful friends and co-laborers in ministry with him. Let's read about it. Uh, we're just going to read a little bit this morning. Let's start in verse 1, go down to verse 11. After these things, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue, every Sabbath, and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, now that's not a little detail there, okay? Spirit threw that in that the guy that Paul was staying with was right next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. I bet he heard some conversations at night with the windows open. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in the city. And Paul settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now, Corinth, as I said, was a major city in southern Greece, and it was noted, uh, uh, located on what's called an isthmus. An isthmus is a narrow strip of land between two bodies of water. And we've got some pictures for you this morning that you can see what ancient Corinth looked like. This is an overview of the city. You can see the water on one side. Modern Corinth is up at the top um, left of the picture here. 
about three miles from the ancient ruins. There's modern Corinth. These are the ancient ruins of Corinth. They're still very, very well preserved uh, to this day in Greece. Um, if you would go to the next slide, please. This is a picture of the temple that was built to Apollo, who was a Greek god. And uh, you can see that it was a pretty significant structure um, that the Corinthians would come and worship there. If you would go to the next one, please. This is a main part of the city. You can see there at the Temple to Apollo. Uh, but this is, you can see a person right here. This is uh, what it would have looked like. Obviously, there would have been buildings there. But you can get a sense of kind of the layout of the land, the fact that it was mountainous, the fact that there was water nearby. Um, so Corinth was uh, a significant city because of its location on the water, halfway between Athens and Sparta. Um, it was a trade town, mostly by boat, and Corinth was known for its creation of a three-oar warship called the Trirem. And the Trirem was created um, as a boat of battle, so the city had some significance. Also because of its location, there was a lot of trade that was coming through town and a lot of Roman influence. Uh, if you go to the next slide, please. This is an example of some of the architecture. Uh, we know Corinthian columns, if you've ever uh, looked at architecture uh, in college or just as a student of architecture, they created the Corinthian or, or column. Um, this is an example of some of the architecture that was there in Corinth. And I'm showing this because I just want you to get a feel for it. When we talk about the Corinthians, we just kind of get this mental picture of what that would have been like. But this was, a, this was a significant town, and it was a beautiful town. You've got one more slide for me, please. This was a castle that was built um, in Corinth on the side of the hill. So you can see just the sense of the landscape, just the sense of where Paul was because he spent a year and a half of his life in this town. And the gospel continues to spread. Thank you. Um, gospel continues to spread throughout the world. And people as far away as Rome now have heard about the gospel. And uh, we see these people, Priscilla and Aquila, who have heard the gospel in Rome and have gotten saved. Now, the emperor of Rome at the time, a man named Claudius, you see this in verse uh, 2, a man named Claudius, was strongly opposed not to religion, but to religious proselytizing. In other words, he was fine with people to believe what they wanted, but he didn't really want people talking about it. And he certainly didn't want people going out and trying to convert other people. So apparently, as some of the Jews in Rome get saved, and as some of the Greeks in Rome get saved, uh, he's irritated by it because apparently they went out and started talking about Jesus Christ. So he orders all the, Ro uh, all the Jews to leave Rome. Obviously, he can't ask all the Greeks to leave Rome because there would be nobody left. So he says, all you Jews, get out of town. I'm tired of it, tired of hearing about this Jesus. I want you to go away. So Priscilla and Aquila, you with me so far? Priscilla and Aquila leave Rome and they go down, uh, excuse me, they leave Italy and they go down to Corinth. Now, as they get to Corinth, they meet Paul. And the three instantly have this bond because they're also tent makers. And immediately there's a connection. They agree to, to stay together and to fellowship together. And they also find an even greater bond, not just that they make tents, but that they know the Lord and that they love the Lord. And there's a great affinity there um, that they can encourage and bless each other. Not only do these two people become strong friends to Paul, not only does he talk about them later in Scripture about what a steadfast believers they were, 
But as Paul is without his friends, he's without Timothy and Silas and Luke uh, as he goes to Corinth, these people bond with him, and they not only become friends to him, but they become a great blessing to his ministry. You know, that's so important for us as believers within the body uh, that we call the church, is that we are able constantly to think outside of ourselves and think beyond ourselves and just serve as an encouragement and a support and a blessing to each other without any expectation in return. We don't see any sense that Priscilla and Aquila said, well, we'll support you and we'll strengthen your ministry and we'll pray for you and we'll listen to you and all your exploits and all the things you have to know, but, but we want to be... Uh, we want to be known with you. We want to be the Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila show. Or, or they don't say, well, we'll agree to support you to the extent that you use us in certain ways, or whatever the case may be. There, there was no expectation here. All they wanted to do was strengthen him and encourage him. And I have to think that after all we've seen Paul go through, not to mention the kind of, and I think there's probably still a little bit of residual um, question Am I really accepted? Did the apostles really recognize me? I know God recognized me, but did the apostles really recognize me? And after all the mess with Barnabas and John Mark, and after being arrested and beaten and tortured, that, that it was refreshing to him at this point just to have a couple people come alongside him and love him and support him and pray for him and encourage him. How many need that this morning? How many need somebody just come alongside and just encourage you? Maybe you're hurting this morning. Maybe, maybe nobody knows what's going on in your life or you've let people know and you don't feel like you're getting enough support and, and you're kind of lonely or kind of discouraged. Well, you know what? As a body, we need to come alongside you without any agenda, without any statement of, well, I, I get something back. Priscilla and Aquila came alongside Paul and they had no other goal in mind but to be a strength. And there's a purity to that. There's a purity to that type of ministry at a time when Paul needed that strength. What's interesting about this, if you look back at the text for a minute, is that all throughout the Gospels and all throughout the book of Acts, I don't know if it's hit you yet uh, as we've been going through, that we're really only singing single people. We haven't really seen couples at any point really in the Gospels or especially in the book of Acts. It's been all these men and all these women that are doing the work of ministry. Now, no doubt some were married. No doubt the apostles were married. We don't know if their families went with them or whether their families were back at home and they were doing the work of ministry. Scripture doesn't clarify it. But really, for the first time in the book of Acts, we see a couple. We had seen one other in chapter 5, uh, Ananias and Sapphira. We know how well that went when they lied to the Lord and the Lord struck them down. But, but here are, are, are uh, this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and they're faithful to God. And they love the Lord. And they're supportive of ministry. And they get what's going on. They get what God's doing. They love the Lord individually, and they love the Lord as a couple. They're mature in their faith. We're going to see that in verse 20. And they're serving the Lord together. I want to say this morning, there are a few things that are more powerful than a husband and wife that are walking with the Lord and working together to serve Him. When we work together for the Lord with our spouses, it's powerful for the church, it's powerful through the church, and it has a tremendous impact on kids. It was a witness in Corinth, 
and sustained Paul until Timothy and Silas came. Now, when we get to verse 5, when Timothy and Silas uh, come to Corinth, it enables Paul to shift gears. Because we see that he was working as a tent maker. He was sustaining himself and his ministry and his life because he needed some kind of money. He needed somebody to help him. And at this point, the churches are not supporting him. We see that later on, uh, especially in the book of Philippians, where he writes them and says, you guys supported me fully. You were the ones that, that sustained me. You sent money. You helped me out. But at this point, it's early in the ministry. The churches are just getting birth. Nobody's supporting him as a missionary yet. So he has to do some work. But we see in chapter 18, verse 5, that when Timothy and Silas come down, and Luke with them, that's implied, and with Priscilla and Aquila serving the Lord, that now Paul can change and he can stop this side career that has helped to sustain him, and he commits himself full-time to the work of ministry. See, Timothy and Silas's arrival allows Paul to go from making tents and eking out a living and then spending time preaching the gospel to now start, we see this in verse 5, to start devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. In other words, he just gets time to pray and to study and to get his heart before the Lord. And that was huge. Because at this point, after all he's been through, he's got to be tired. He's been beaten and imprisoned and opposed and ridiculed and driven out of more towns than you can count. And a lot of people don't like him. A lot of people are after him. He's got to be weary and discouraged. He doesn't really have a support group other than these younger believers. He's just kind of going in the power of the Lord. And now for people to say, hey, listen, relax. You do the work of ministry that God's called you to do, and we'll do the work of ministry that God's called us to do. There is tremendous power when the people of God use their gifts to do the work of ministry. If you don't believe that, I'm going to say it again. Walk into the ministry center this week. Look at what God is doing in our midst. Come see the work of physical and spiritual preparation that's been given to minister to these kids. Or if you want an example today, when you pick up your kids, just see what the teachers are doing. Ask your children, what did you learn today? What did the teachers teach you? See, they're doing that while we're sitting here in the service, and it's a sacrifice for them not to be here. Many of you serve back there, and maybe next week's your week, and it'll be a sacrifice for you to be there so we can be here. The point is that everybody needs to have a part in what is going on in ministry for it to be effective. And every church struggles with the problem that 20% of people do 80% of the work. We started out very well. We may be creeping back to that a little bit. And I want to say again, the responsibilities of the church can't be done by 20% of the people. So every person, if you attend here, and you do because you're here today, so this applies to everybody. If you attend here and you're being fed spiritually and you're getting fellowship and your kids are learning about the Lord, you need to be serving in some way. We don't say that as a condemnation or as a guilt trip. We say that because the body is stronger because of it. Paul's ministry was energized because Aquila and Priscilla came alongside and supported him. And then Timothy and Silas and Luke come down and they do the work of ministry. And they say, Paul, stop making tents. Go study. 
go pray, go get before the Lord, because you're going to be the one that's going to go into the synagogue and do the work. They allowed him to fulfill his calling, and by allowing him to fulfill his calling, they fulfilled their calling. It's a beautiful picture of how the body of Christ works. And 1 Corinthians 12 talks about it, the different gifts that we've been given to serve the Lord. Now, even though, let's get back to the text for a minute, even though Paul's been in the synagogue before, and he's had the same debates with the Jews, and I doubt that they varied from time to time because the Jews were lockstep into the law and into what they needed to do, that Paul's had these same arguments with them. The Spirit is telling us that Paul had to be equipped for that spiritual battle. Just the time of prayer alone was vital for him. He needed wisdom and discernment from the Holy Spirit. What am I supposed to say? He needed that spiritual filter. I shouldn't say that. He needed that thermometer on his heart so that as he started to get aggravated and annoyed and the Jews were demonstrative and they're waving their hands and they're opposing him and they're frustrating him, that he, his spiritual thermometer needed to just kind of stay calm, right? Everybody knows they have a spiritual thermometer that, that we get, and the emotional thermometer goes up and we start to get aggravated and we react differently. Paul had to go before the Lord and say, Lord, calm me. Give me the right words. When they go there with the argument, sustain me, help me. And he would study and he would pray and he would prepare his heart because even though he was intelligent, even though he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, even though he could debate anybody, he still had to study the word. He still had to dig deep into scripture and prepare his heart and get fresh insight and fresh application. So when he had those discussions with people, whether they were negative or favorable, that he would know what to say. Because he was going to face a lot of opposition. And we see this in the text as he goes back to the synagogue. Look at it. It says that as he did this, when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. I'm going to the Gentiles. For the first time in Acts, we see Paul really demonstratively react to the Jews. We really see him get fed up and say, you know what? You guys just simply aren't going to believe. And he takes his clothes and he does this. He, he shakes them, literally. And what he was doing was saying, I'm absolved of responsibility. I did my job. I spoke to you. I told you. Now I'm sick of it. I, I, I'm, I'm tired. You will not listen. You're resisting. You're cursing the name of my Savior. You're denying Jesus Christ. You're resisting the gospel. So you know what? Your blood is on your hands. You want to do that? You want to oppose this? You want to resist it? That's fine. That phrase was an ancient phrase which essentially said, you are purposely choosing a position of guilt. It's reminiscent of what the crowds said when Jesus was going to be crucified and Pilate says, hey, shaking my clothes here, washing my hands, I'm doing everything to let you know this guy's not guilty. And the people cry out and they say, kill him and put his blood on us and put his blood on our children. It's a shockingly uh, purposeful position that they say, you know what? We'll take the guilt. If he is who he says he was, put it on us. We're so anxious to put him to death that we don't care. 
That was really the position of the Jews all throughout the New Testament. And Paul here makes a very definitive statement. He says, fine. You want to deny Christ? You want to blaspheme? You want to curse Christ? You want to say that this didn't really happen? Fine. Your blood, his blood is on you. Now I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Paul would talk to the Jews again. In the next town, he would go to the synagogue. He's not saying, I'll never talk to you again. He's making a statement that as you continue to resist, I'm going to turn my attention somewhere else. But that doesn't mean that all the Jews were opposed. And it's very powerful when you see it here in the text down in verse 7. That as Paul goes to the house of this man named Justice, who's a worshiper of God, and don't miss those next six words because the Spirit doesn't throw them in for his amusement. He throws them in because it's important. Justice's house just happened, by the way, coincidence, wink, wink. It just happened to be next to the synagogue. You can imagine the discussions that the great Apostle Paul had with Justice and the way they talked over lunch as the windows were open because they didn't have Pella windows in there. It was all open. And they would talk and they would debate and they would praise God and they would pray. And all of a sudden, the person who's the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, hears that. And Crispus's heart is changed. He, as the leader of the synagogue, should have been the one who stood most against Paul because all the Jews are opposing Paul. And yet it says that he believed Christ and so did his whole house. Now, stop there just for a minute because there's a very subtle but important spiritual principle that the Holy Spirit's showing us here. And it's a common theme in the book of Acts. Here's the thought. That when parents trusted Christ, it greatly influenced the children. In the book of Acts, when parents or adults trusted Christ, it greatly influenced the children. We see it in the Philippian jailer. We see it with Lydia. And now we see it with Christmas. That the parents get saved and it influenced their kids. Now, based on the situations of the people involved, we can conclude that this was not passive. If you grew up in a Christian home, you know that you kind of believed what your parents believed because you went to church and that's what they taught and you kind of embraced it. If you didn't grow up in a Christian home, you know that you didn't have that influence. So when you made a decision for Christ, that was your decision. That was really something where God convicted you and you stepped out of darkness into light. For those of us that grew up in a Christian home, sometimes we kind of eased into it, right? You know what I'm talking about? You, you kind of eased into cool. Well, my parents always taught me and we always went to church. So there had to be a definitive point where you said, that's my decision. I remember when I was nine, I, I, I had been in church all my life. My dad was a pastor. But I, I got convicted. And I thought, Lord, you're calling me out of sin. This is a decision now that you've called me to that I've got to make. This is not something I just accept because I'm taken by proxy because my parents believe. This has to be my decision. And that's what we see in Acts. We don't see a... Well, the kids just believed whatever the parents told them. This was a strong conviction. How do we know that? Well, we see in the text, look at it, that each person was baptized. There was a public declaration of their faith in Christ. Baptism is not optional for believers. There's really no legitimate excuse not to be baptized. It is one of the strongest ways 
that we show our allegiance to the Lord. So as parents, we have a responsibility and a privilege to teach our kids, to teach them to love the Lord, to teach them to know the gospel, to model what we are saying they need to know, to intentionally influence them for Christ, to train them in the word of God without hesitation. But ultimately, it is going to be their conviction and their faith, not something we just do for them. I heard a very sobering statistic on Friday night that 67% of kids, two out of three kids that are raised in a Christian home who either went to a Christian school or attended a youth group, two out of three kids in that situation do not stay with the faith by the age of 25. Two out of three children that are in church, not, not unchurched kids, two out of three children that are in church that have parents that are believers that go to a Christian school or go to a youth group Don't stay with the faith by 25. Now, I hope that grabs our attention and hope it spurs us to really teach our kids well and to stay with it and to be faithful to them and to teach them that we are faithful to the Lord in any circumstance. That's what makes this account so compelling because we see that happening in these people's lives and the fact of their cultural circumstances doesn't dissuade them from the reality of their conviction. The jailer was a Gentile. It would not be good for him to trust in Christ, especially because the people that led him to Christ had been put there because they were preaching the gospel. And now the jailer comes back and says, well, I believe that gospel, and my wife believes it, and my kids believe it, and we all got baptized. Not only was he probably going to lose his job, but now he's saying, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Lydia was in Philippi, which was under the powerful influence of Rome. Roman religion stressed knowledge. It stressed ritual. It was not based on faith. It was not based on dogma. It was based on doing the same things over and over and being smart. And there was an offshoot where people worshipped the sun and where they worshipped nature. So here comes Lydia And she's in Philippi, which is a Roman colony. And she says, I don't worship the creation. I worship the creator. He's my God. He created me. Christ died for my sins. She's a local merchant. And and how much did that impact her business? How much did that impact her friendships? That she took that stand. And that her uh, kids took that stand. And then there's Crispus. The leader of the synagogue in Corinth where people are blaspheming the name of God, where people are cursing the name of Christ, where there's complete opposition, and Crispus gets saved. That flew in the face of Judaism. It flew in the face of the reason for the synagogue. And Crispus says, I'm saved. My wife's saved. My family's saved. My kids are saved. And we worship Jesus Christ. And that was very provocative because now other believers are getting saved. Other people, other Jews, other Greeks, they're all starting to believe in Christ. And there's a huge movement in Corinth. A pagan city that worshipped false gods. And all of a sudden, the leader of the synagogue is saved. And his family's saved. And Greeks are saved. And Jews are saved. And it starts to infiltrate. Now that would seem to me to be impetus enough for Paul to press on with the work of ministry. And to be bold and outspoken 
And because he's so intelligent and he's so capable and he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ and he's confident in his calling, you would think now that he's got Priscilla and Aquila and now that the leader of the synagogue is saved and now that the gospel's spreading and Corinth is starting to change, that Paul would then ramp it up and say, all right, we're ready to go now. I'm spending a year and a half here. So it's fascinating. Look back at verse 9. That as all this is going on, the Lord comes to him in a vision. And he says, don't be afraid any longer. Now we're going to get back to those two words in a minute because they give us insight. But look at the next thing he says. Don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and don't be silent. Now stop there. We'll look at the next sentence in a minute. But I want you to look very closely at verse 9. First of all, the fact that the Lord says, don't be afraid any longer indicates to us that there is some degree of fear and hesitation in Paul's ministry that we don't necessarily see in the text, but that was clearly there. The Lord challenges challenges us in our areas of need or deficiency. So the fact that he goes head on with Paul about this means, and I know this is shocking, it's shocking to me, that, that Paul, in a sense, was a little bit gun-shy. And it had to be so liberating to him for God to say to him, don't be scared anymore. See, one of the things that is paralyzing so many pastors around the country this morning is the feeling that we can't preach the whole counsel of God. With all the relativism and pluralism and political correctness and government watchdogs and activist watchdogs and the changing nature of church ministry and the, the changing nature of theology that I've talked about so many times before and I don't want to belabor this morning. Many pastors don't really know what to do next. They won't admit it, but in their hearts, they don't know what to do. Those who love the Lord and the Word of God and feel called to preach it are fearful They're scared they're going to lose their pulpits or that their congregation won't be interested if they preach the gospel. So they soften their message to fit with the times. Let me give you an example of this. I was um, looking uh, late last night on Facebook, and I I know, it's shocking. I was on Facebook. But my, my former high school principal, who posts a lot of great articles, posted an article from the American Spectator. And I read through it, and it detailed that there's a new generation of Christians who say that the evangelical church needs to step back and it needs to soften its stance on polarizing issues like homosexual marriage or abortion or the contraceptive mandate that the president's trying to push through, that that we need to step back from that. And their claim for that is that the church is failing to reach young professionals because in their mind we're seen as reactionary or hateful. So they want what they're calling a new public image for the faith one that is, quote, helpfully upbeat. And the author goes on to detail past history, how churches spoke out against slavery and how they stood for the woman's right to vote and they stood for prohibition and they fought against the denial of civil rights on racial grounds. Hard battles that were fought that cost churches members and even cost people their lives. And then the quote at the end of the article really caught my attention. He says, today's culture wars over marriage, abortion, and domestic religious freedom seem terribly tame compared to the supreme culture war over slavery that concluded with the Civil War. 
Even before the war, abolitionists often risked mobs and lynching, even in the north, in the interest of social harmony, should they have relented? And the answer, that question is rhetorical. You see, we're not even talking about what the Bible teaches about the issues. We're just talking about the impression we're giving to people. And instead, we're being told that we need to soften our biblical conviction because people might not like it if we talk about the Bible. And people might not like it, and we won't be as popular with everybody if we really teach what the Bible says. Do you see the dilemma? This is why most pastors are stuck. And some are trying to stay faithful with the third option of just preaching the whole counsel of God and trusting that the Holy Spirit will do His work. Let the Holy Spirit just do the work of convicting and challenging encouraging people. But I'm telling you this morning, as a pastor, there are not very many that, that can do that because the pressure to conform is so great. I remember a lunch I had a couple years ago with Pastor Toledo down at Chicago Tabernacle, and he was a little bit discouraged, and he told me, he said, Paul, I feel like I'm preaching to the remnant. I said, we are. We are preaching to the remnant. We're living in 2 Timothy 4 where it says that people will have itching ears. They don't want to hear what the Bible has to say. I'm so thankful that this church does, that this church wants to hear what the Bible has to say. And we sat there and we talked and commiserated and, and over our soup, which was so good, that soup at McNamara's. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? So good. We sat there and ate soup. And we decided right there, you know what? We're just going to be faithful to the Word of God. Let's just, let's just keep going. Let's be faithful. If we're preaching to a remnant, then let's preach to a remnant. And in case that seems discouraging, and in case we think, well, this is too big for us, I want to tell you that since that lunch, probably three years ago, Chicago Tabernacle has doubled. And many people have come to know the Lord, and they've been drawn to the Word of God, and they've grown in their faith and their love for the Lord. And as we remain faithful to the Lord, listen now, and as we remain faithful to God's calling on this church, I believe exactly the same thing will happen here. Because as the world gets more and more uncertain, and people look for answers, they will be drawn to the gospel, they will be drawn to salvation in Jesus Christ alone, and they will really be drawn to people that love to worship and praise and study and pray and trust in Him and talk about it. They're not going to be turned off by this. They're going to be drawn to it. Now imagine if we're feeling that pressure. Imagine the pressure that Paul felt as he was in Corinth. Now look back at verse 9. We're almost done. This is why the Lord tells him what every pastor and every Christian needs to hear this morning. He says, go on speaking. Don't be silent. And let's all say out loud the reason for that confidence. It's the next five words. He says, tell me, for I am with you. That's all you need. Paul, if you're hesitant, you're fearful, you've been beaten up a couple times, I get it. You've been kicked out of five cities. You got an interesting track record, my friend. You've been kicked out of Iconium and Philippi, and Lystra, and Thessalonica, and Berea. They didn't exactly like you in Athens, and here in Corinth you got some opposition too. But I'm telling you, if you feel fearful of that, don't stop. 
my presence alone is enough to sustain you. And then God gives Paul three more assurances. Look at them. He says, no one will attack you and harm you, which was great news because he had been arrested and stoned and all kinds of things. He said, nobody's going to hurt you here. Then he says, second, I have a lot of people here. In other words, you don't really have to break new ground and find believers. There are plenty of believers here, and you're going to get support. So keep plugging away. And then third, as he stays there 18 months, the Jews, as usual, oppose him. But the Lord gives him a final line of defense. We have this proconsul. We won't read it. You can look at it later from verses 12 to 22. There's this, this governor, Roman governor. When the Jews come and they say, hey, come on, you've got to stop this guy. The Roman governor says to them, your accusations are baseless. I'm not listening to this. And even when they drag the, the, the new leader of the synagogue out and start to beat him, the, the Roman council says, I don't, I'm not interested in this. I'm not getting involved. What Paul's doing is not wrong. See, God kept his word. They're not going to harm you. You're not going to have opposition. In fact, you've got a lot of people in town that are supportive of you. Just keep doing what you're doing. And Paul, if you ever have question, God says to him, I'm with you. I'll help you. Now let's finish by looking at Priscilla and Quilla and what happens with them. Because they do something very bold and influential. Romans 16 says that they sponsored home churches. They were leaders in Ephesus. When they eventually move, they risked their lives for Paul. But it's what they do here in verses 25 to 26 that shows their spiritual maturity and their sensitivity to the Lord. Start verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus. And he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, but he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. See, Apollos had many advantages. He had many characteristics that you would want in terms of his qualifications to do ministry. He was a Jew born in Europe, so he could address the Jews and the Greeks. He was eloquent and mighty with Scripture. He was uh, instructed by the Lord himself. He was passionate and fervent about the Lord. He taught the Word of God accurately, especially about Christ. This guy has everything going for him. Any church in the world would be glad to have Apollos. But he had one problem. His information about Christ was limited. Essentially, he only knew about John's baptism. John's baptism was an act of repentance. It was an act of preparation to see Jesus as he came and offered himself as Savior. The baptism of John was a baptism of preparation and of repentance and, and of getting ready. So Priscilla and Aquila, when they hear him just talking about the baptism of John in relationship to Jesus Christ, they do something very gutsy and very important. They pull him to the side and they say, brother, you are awesome. You're wonderful. Your, 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 your passion, your love for the Lord, your ability is off the charts. But we need to help 
fill in some of your doctrine. Because you know about Christ, but you only know about part of Christ. So we need to explain what we know about the Word and about Jesus Christ. Now, notice quickly that they don't call attention to themselves. They don't pull a power play. They don't become critical of what Apollos doesn't know. They don't say, I can't believe you think you can go out there and talk about Christ when you don't even know all the theology. So everybody, how many people think we should talk to Apollos? They don't do that. They pull him over to the side, not snide, not not full of pride, not condescending. They don't complain or gossip about him. Can you believe that Apollos guy? Boy, he's got a big head, doesn't he? They take him aside privately, and we have to assume humbly and without doing any damage to him or his reputation to the church. And they say, let us just help you. Why do they do that? Because their greatest concern was the gospel. Their greatest concern was the gospel. If people were going to talk about Christ, no matter how capable they were, Priscilla and Aquila wanted to make sure that the doctrine was correct, that Christ was shown as our Savior by faith, and that God was praised and exalted. Let me ask you, I'm done. Is that our motivation for ministry? Is our motivation for ministry always that the gospel would be given, that Christ would be exalted, that Christ would be seen as Savior, that the deflection would always be away from us. The impact they have cannot be overstated because we know from 1 Corinthians 1 that Apollos ended up having a powerful ministry in the city of Corinth. But it would not have happened that way if they had not been willing to strengthen him and protect the gospel and to carefully build on the foundation that's been laid. Listen, God's going to do a great work this week. I am convinced of it. He is going to work in kids' lives. He's going to change kids' hearts. We're going to see kids learn about Christ and learn to trust Christ this week. But let's make sure, and I don't think anybody's done this yet, but this is our our warning. Let's make sure everything we do this week is to draw attention to Jesus Christ. That we don't do anything that would draw attention to us. Because when that happens, the type of ministry that we have and the type of impact that we can have will be profound. And it doesn't just apply to this week. It applies to every day. That Jesus Christ would be known. I don't care, honestly. I spent the first part of my life thinking I'd love to be well known. I'd love to preach in the great churches. I don't care about that anymore. I just want Christ to be known. Doesn't matter what people know about us, doesn't matter what people think about us, it matters that they know Christ. And that's what Priscilla and Aquila did, and that's what we have an opportunity to do. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for how you have worked in our lives in so many ways. Lord, you have been so good to us. And we praise you this morning for your faithfulness. We praise you for your mercy. We praise you for your Holy Spirit who comes alongside us and helps us and strengthens us every single day. We thank you that you have called us to this work of ministry, of standing for you, of representing you, of talking about you. Lord, it intimidates us a lot of times. 
but you are so faithful and you give us the words that we need to say. And Father, we thank you for this great calling that we have to serve you and to minister for you. And Lord, this week we have a tremendous opportunity to reach kids for Christ, to tell them about the goodness of God, to tell them about how you transform hearts. Lord, strengthen us, equip us this week as we minister. May not one child see us. May they only see you. And Lord, we will praise you and exalt you for what you're going to do in our midst. Lord, we love you and we thank you that you're a faithful and sufficient God. Give us ministry this week, Lord, whether it be at the ministry center or whether it be in our workplace or with our families. Give us ministry this week that we can do to show people the love of Christ. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, everybody said together, Amen.